But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the, uh, some, some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the others about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Basabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and trouble you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us to um, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it was for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of his encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. I wonder, did you hear a few years ago about the researchers who set up a Wi-Fi hotspot over in Canary Wharf, offering free Wi-Fi so long as you accepted their terms and conditions? Smuggled into the small print was a so-called Herod Clause, stating that the recipient agreed to assign their firstborn child to us for the duration of eternity. Six people signed up. I'm told they're not going to enforce the clause. But it illustrates, doesn't it, that we don't pay that much attention to small print. We don't even tend to check it. Whenever I sign up for things, I'll tick. Yeah, I've read the terms and conditions. and I've got a slight tender conscience. I feel a little bit guilty about lying to them. But, you know, I'm not going to read all of that. And here's the question. Is there small print with the gospel? Is there small print that we haven't read with the gospel? About a year ago, I was reading the Gospel of John with a friend of mine who's not a Christian. And as we were reading through, I kept asking him whether uh, Jesus was someone that he wanted a relationship with. It was increasingly clear that the answer was yes. But he said he was concerned about the bits of the Bible that we weren't reading. Was there some small print in there that he discovered down the line? As he put it to me, what if there's a bit of the Bible that says that every second Tuesday you have to take your shirt off and run around naked? That was literally his suggestion. And I was able to reassure him that there really isn't. Let me reassure you if you're now worried about that. There really isn't a part of the Bible that says that. But it raises an interesting question. This evening, we've been considering that God saves by grace through faith. It's a wonderful teaching that lots of us are familiar with. But what if there is some small print? What if there is something else hidden away? Verse 1 of chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's an issue that comes at the end of a section in Acts, which has been running all the way since the beginning of chapter 12. A section in which we've seen loads of international outreach spreading around the Mediterranean. And like the other big sections in Acts, it concludes with a big issue that arises out of the advance of the gospel. And this time it's a question over whether that international outreach has been missing something out. After all, international outreach, in a sense, isn't new to the New Testament. Anyone could be a part of God's people in the Old Testament. But back then, Gentiles, non-Jews, were considered to be unclean until they got circumcised. If they wanted to belong to God's people, they had to obey the law. 
Exodus 12, for example, you can check out later, says that if a Gentile shall live with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who lives among you. Gentiles were allowed to belong to the people of God, but they had to obey the law. And so these Jewish men step in to correct a gaping hole, they think, in the news that Paul and Barnabas have been proclaiming. Verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Or as verse 5 goes on to put it, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Can you see why they'd say that sort of thing? And can you see why it might trouble the people that Paul and Barnabas have been reaching over these last couple of chapters? Someone turns to them and says, are you doing all of the law of Moses? Are you circumcised? Because if not, well, you're not actually going to get saved. It was so unsettling that it prompted Paul to write the letter of Galatians, which you can find elsewhere in the New Testament. Now, I'm guessing that none of us have a particular issue with circumcision. In fact, I was reading the New Testament with someone a couple of years ago and kept coming across this issue of circumcision. And he said to me, Tim, you do know I've not got an issue with this, right? But there are other things that people tag on to the gospel. Uh, there's a popular cult operating in London which tells people that salvation is by faith plus baptism. That unless you get baptized, and specifically baptized in their church, you will not be saved. I was speaking to a student just the other day who was um, invited to join a Bible study by a random person on the street and found himself drawn in by that teaching. And even if you're not drawn in by that, there will be other things that grab us. Are you really saved? Have you really done all that is needed? Are you sure? Have you checked all the small print? Have you read all of this? Whether you've been a Christian for decades or you're just investigating the claims of Jesus, it can be easy to get drawn into thinking that we are saved by faith plus something else. And we're not just in danger of believing it. I think we're in danger of proclaiming it, of adding a requirement that isn't central to the message of Jesus, of giving people the impression that they are excluded when actually Jesus is holding out his hands in welcome. What is essential to the gospel and what isn't? What is at the heart of the gospel and what isn't? Back in September, last time I was in this pulpit, I said that being too exclusive puts us in opposition to God. And the same issue is back here again in Acts chapter 15. We could be in opposition to God. And so we need to be crystal clear on this gospel so that we know whether or not we are saved and so that we don't exclude others who should be included, which is why this chapter is really important for us. And Luke doesn't take us all the way through the uh, negotiations at the Jerusalem Council. I love the way that he just abbreviates loads of discussions. Look at verse 2. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Who knows what was going on there? Uh, but the two of them take this debate down to Jerusalem, and we see the outcome of their discussions in two big responses, two clear responses at, at the heart of the chapter. Firstly, then, from Peter, remember the early days. God showed no distinction. Remember the early days. God showed no distinction. Look at verse 6. 
The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, there's another abbreviation, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. For anyone who thinks that the Gentiles are still unclean, Peter has this knockdown argument. Verse 8, God knows the heart. And verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And Luke has already given us two accounts of this episode when Peter first proclaimed the gospel to non-Jews. And through Peter, he takes us there all over again. And his point is to show us yet again that the dismissal of Gentiles as unclean is entirely wrong. God has even poured out his great new covenant blessing, the, the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, at living in Gentile believers. And do you want to see whether Gentiles are clean? Well, without a single circumcision, no hint or glint of a knife, God made his home in a bunch of non-Jewish people, and all they did was believe. But Peter's point is even stronger than that. It's not just the Gentiles. Even the Jews themselves were saved by faith without obeying the law. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And you see, they weren't able to obey the law. It was a yoke on their necks. Indeed, if you flip back to chapter 13, we saw a very similar idea in Paul's preaching earlier. Chapter 13, verse 38, at the bottom of page 1111, Paul said this, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses could not free you from sin. It could not deliver forgiveness. The Jews were only ever saved by faith. You can see it from the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, the law was added in for a period of time for the nation of Israel, but it couldn't free you. It couldn't save you. And now it is no longer needed to be a part of God's people. The Jews, just like the Gentiles, need only to turn to Jesus. In fact, back in chapter 15, uh, some translations of verse 11 make that even more explicit. Uh, verse 11, but we believe in order that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We believe in order that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Uh, by all means, grab me about that later. If you want to ask more about the law, we don't have time for it now. Or you could save the question for next week's question time, which we'll have uh, after our sermon then. But please, see Peter's big point. Remember the early days. God made no distinction. Gentiles, just as much as Jews, have been saved by faith. When Facebook began 20 years ago, uh, it used to have a very limited admission policy. I don't know if you knew this. Uh, when I joined Facebook, you had to belong to a university. 
indeed to a particular list of approved universities with a university email address. Of course, anyone could be part of Facebook if they wanted to. They'd just have to sign up to go to one of those universities, which feels a bit excessive just to join Facebook. Yeah, I'm going to get myself in thousands of pounds of debt, but I've joined Facebook. Since 2006, it's been open to everyone. Nearly two billion people apparently use Facebook every day. And in fact, fewer and fewer of those seem to be students. But imagine if someone said to you, well, actually, unless you've got a valid university email address, you cannot be on Facebook. It's necessary to attend university if you want to be a member of uh, the Facebook community. And they draw attention to this old user policy that talks about a list of accepted institutions, the, re the requirement of an email address that ends.ac.uk. You just turn around, wouldn't you, and you say, that's a load of rubbish. It's not been the case since 2006. Facebook makes no distinction. Remember the early days since the policy change. They even accepted my dad, and he has not been to university since the dark ages. He's probably watching from home. You're welcome, dad. <laughs> even my own Facebook account is not registered with a university email address anymore. This will shock you, sorry everyone, I'm not a student anymore. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, they say. Now, Peter's response is clear. Remember the early days. God made no distinction. Gentiles and Jews, saved by faith. And that should be enough for us. It should make it clear. But James is eager to build on what Peter has said, which takes us to our second big point. Remember the prophets. God promised an international kingdom. Uh, we hear from James, who was the brother of Jesus, not one of the apostles, uh, but an elder in the church in Jerusalem. And he steps up to give a ringing endorsement of what Peter has just said. Look at verse 14. Simeon, uh, that's Peter's Jewish name, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will re rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Back in the Old Testament, God had spoken through his prophet Amos and had predicted a time when his people would be cast into exile, shaking them among the nations like a, a sieve. It's the image just earlier in Amos 9. And then he made an amazing promise, quoted here in verse 16, to rebuild the tent of David. In fact, that quote is actually a little bit of a, a mashup between various prophecies, mainly Amos 9, but a few other prophecies thrown in as well. Uh, but they're all speaking of a time when God will reestablish the kingly line of David. Only this time, the king would reign over a kingdom of many nations, not just the Jews or those who became Jews, but all the world. Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may see the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. It has, in a sense, been the theme of all of our series in Acts. I wonder if you realize that we'd call this, called this series One King to Rule Them All, Jesus to Rule All the Nations. And James draws out the implications for their debate. Verse 19, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't trouble the Gentiles. 
They don't need to become Jews. They don't need to obey the law. God's kingdom is for Jews and Gentiles, for whoever turns to King Jesus. Back in 2006, when Facebook threw open its doors, they issued a press release entitled, Welcome to Facebook, Everyone, which now just seems a bit dystopian, doesn't it? Kind of sinister Facebook. But imagine for a moment Facebook is something you're really keen on. This is our illustration of the kingdom of heaven, so you've got to kind of work with me here. Welcome to Facebook, everyone. The few short sentences of this press release were all about how they were determined to be inclusive. Now you can all connect, they said. It was a press release that left no ambiguity, no questions. Everyone can be a part of it. And if anyone wanted to question Facebook's admission policy now, their press release would be clear proof of it all. Well, Amos is kind of God's press release. And it remains a great place to see God's admission policy. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Now you can all connect. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven, everyone. You'll notice James does add in some requirements. Verse 20, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Which isn't because he is now smuggling in some small prints. It's still about ensuring this international kingdom. A look at his reason in verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. In other words, there are Jewish people everywhere, all around the Mediterranean, and they're going to be particularly sensitive to these four things. Uh, idolatry, sexual immorality, things that have been strangled and blood. They're going to be particularly sensitive because they're hearing the law preached week by week. And so just as the Jews shouldn't trouble the Gentiles, well, they're saying, let's make sure the Gentiles don't trouble the Jews by doing these things that will offend their consciences. Don't keep the Gentiles out by insisting they keep the law, but also don't keep the Jews out by making the church the sort of place that they'd hate to be around. It's important to understand that reasoning because James is not adding in small print. It's not salvation by faith provided that you avoid black pudding and blood transfusions. If you need a blood transfusion, you are free to get one. Now, he's making sure that the Jews aren't troubled any more than the Gentiles are. They're doing everything to keep the gospel accessible to all nations. Of course, there are other reasons why you might avoid some of the things on that list. Both idolatry and sexual immorality come up in multiple places in the New Testament and always condemned. Nowadays, we're free to eat black pudding and have blood transfusions without making the church inhospitable. But we're not free to engage in idolatry or, or sexual immorality. Not because we're adding in small print, but because we're sticking to the essential gospel. Repentance, a turning from our former way of living, has always been at the heart of the gospel message. From Peter's first sermon in Acts 2 through to James's words in verse 19, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. It's the other side of the coin from faith. As Jesus himself put it, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Turning to Jesus has always been how you're saved. But crucially, turning to Jesus and nothing else. If Jesus' kingdom is to be made up of Jews and Gentiles, you can't smuggle the law back in and insist that Gentiles become Jews after all. 
any small prints that you add in will always deny somebody access that God welcomes. In order that Jesus be king of an international kingdom, there's only one requirement, turning to him. It's an admission policy that enables anyone to enter, regardless of race or ethnicity. Christ is king over an international kingdom. And so salvation must be available to anyone who turns to Jesus by faith alone. So how are we to respond? Let me suggest a couple of implications for us. Firstly, be encouraged. Be encouraged. That's how this was received by its first audience, wasn't it? Paul and Barnabas, they head back to Antioch with two other representatives of the church, verse 30. So when they were, just over the page, verse 30, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered this letter, the verdict of the council. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. I realize at this point on Sunday evening, we might not be feeling that huge encouragement, but they rejoiced. They were ready to sing when they heard this letter. And you think, why? Well, actually, it should be a huge encouragement to us. It should feel like a massive, great hug from Jerusalem. Or if you're not the hug sort of person, I don't know, a hearty handshake. Feels a bit rubbish, but if that's your thing, then, you know, this is how Jerusalem are responding to the the non-Jewish people up in Antioch. It's good news. The promise of the Holy Spirit, the blessings of the new covenant, relationship with God and his people is available to everyone who turns to Jesus. And we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, a meal that proclaims that Jesus has died on our behalf and welcomes anyone who turns to trust in him. It's a declaration of our unity, in a sense. And importantly, we have an open table. Anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus is welcome to celebrate this with us because salvation is by faith for all. It doesn't matter if you haven't taken the Lord's Supper before. The basis of our salvation is not the Lord's Supper or when you last had it or how you were baptized or any other extra thing. If you have turned to Christ, you will be saved. Do you see why the church was so encouraged? I wonder, do you feel the the welcome of the council's decision? Don't be troubled, they say. Some of us labor under an agony of guilt, a sense that we don't deserve this salvation. We don't. That we haven't done enough. Well, in a sense, we haven't. But that's not what is required of us. Some of us may be troubled by unsettling words from those who claim to be Bible teachers, who say you need to do something else in order to be saved. But as verse 9 reminds us, God makes no distinction between us, having cleansed our hearts by faith. That's why that cult's teaching to that student is so damaging because it it creates a crisis of confidence that is totally uncalled for. If you are depending on Jesus, if you have turned to trust in him, if you're seeking to submit to his rule over your life, however wavering, however weak you feel in that, you are clean. You will be saved. And if you've not yet turned to Jesus, if you haven't embraced this offer, This is the only hurdle. 
There is no small print. Turn to Jesus and you will be saved. We believe in order that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. It's no wonder that John Newton's great hymn describes it as amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But if it is so sweet a sound, we want to make sure it's the same sweet sound that everybody else hears, which is the other big implication. Uh, If you like a kind of inflexibility, can I call it that? Peter is so riled up about this that he wants to warn those who depart from this gospel. He says that they're putting God to the test. I can't remember the verse now, but it's in there somewhere. Uh, Verse 10, why are you putting God to the test? It's a warning on the same terms as he warned Ananias and Sapphira back in chapter 5, if you know Acts 5. To depart from this inflexible heart of the gospel is to oppose God. And so let's make sure we don't move on from it. For a start, let's make sure that we don't lose any part of this message. You do need to turn to Jesus. He is this king. God doesn't offer salvation to anyone of faith. You know that term that we hear all around nowadays? Those who have faith in Jesus are those who will be saved. We believe in order that we'll be saved, but through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And you need to turn to Jesus. James talks about those who have turned to God. And as he says later in the New Testament, in the book of James, faith without works is dead. In Jesus' words, repent and believe. There is an inflexible heart to this message, and if we stop proclaiming it, well, we'll find ourselves opposing God and denying people the opportunity to have a place amongst his people. But I suspect our bigger danger, and actually the danger confronted in this chapter, is of adding to the gospel, adding a yoke on the neck of disciples when we exclude people on the basis of things that God hasn't said, we're taking God's salvation out of the hands of those who were ready to receive it. Adding to the gospel ruins it just as quickly as taking away from it. Have you heard that gospel maths? Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Add anything to Jesus, and it ruins the gospel. The church is an amazing mix of people from every nation. And so naturally, there'll be things that we disagree on, that we come to differently. It's one of those things that makes church so interesting. Elsewhere in the Bible, even our view of the Old Testament law is the matter over which we might disagree. You can check out Romans 14 later. But when we make our differences part of the inflexible heart of the gospel, when we add anything to the simple requirement to turn to Jesus... Unless you trust Jesus and do this extra thing, you cannot be saved. And we say that sort of thing. We are opposing God. I wonder, do we build up a picture in our mind of those who are saved that goes further than simply turning to Jesus? Is your view of somebody who's saved anything more than someone who has responded to that offer? Do we give people the impression that the gospel is for a particular class or race or set of political views. In fact, there might be lots of good things that we want people to do. We talked earlier about how great it would be to be here on Wednesday for the small groups. That would be a great thing. To come to a weekend away, that would be a great thing. Coming on Sundays, it's a brilliant thing to do. But do we leave leave people thinking that they are saved by the institutions of St. Helens? Do we end up proclaiming ourselves? 
or simply Jesus? We'll need to say more about that next week. Please read on in Acts. Come back next Sunday. And as I said, there'll be a question time. But as we think about it this week, please don't just think, how do other people get this wrong? Ask yourself, where are you most in danger of proclaiming a gospel of Jesus plus? I said at the bottom of the handout, faith plus. I think more helpfully, where are you in danger of proclaiming a gospel of Jesus plus? What do you think someone needs to do to be saved? And are you ready to be flexible about those things that don't matter in order to be inflexible about those that do? A few years ago, some researchers set up a Wi-Fi hotspot in Canary Wharf, offering free Wi-Fi, but with some small print, a Herod clause, and six people signed up. But many, many more years ago, some apostles set up some churches all around the Mediterranean, offering free forgiveness to anyone who turns to Jesus. And there was no small print, no extra requirements, simply Jesus. An admission policy that was designed to embrace the whole world. And we want the whole world to sign up. So let's make sure that is what they hear. Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we praise you for the wonderful news that we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you'd encourage each of us here who has turned to the Lord Jesus with great confidence that we will be saved. And we pray that any here who aren't yet trusting in Jesus would come to see his wonderful offer with even greater clarity. And we pray that over these coming weeks, as we make him known, You would keep us from adding anything to this precious gospel. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.